Every day, stories like this. New data out today shows asking prices for houses have doubled in some areas in the past 10 years. The Auckland property boom has basically started again. It started a little bit early. That'll carry on not just in through 2021, but right but for the next 7, 8, 9, 10 years. It's not just Auckland seeing enormous growth. The regions are red hot too. If you're a homeowner in the Bay of Plenty, get out the champagne. Asking prices in Kaurau have surged 132% in the past decade. You can just see the wide gulf that we're starting to see. More importantly, as those house prices continue to rise at such a fast clip compared to incomes, it means that everyone's on such a back foot that it takes longer and longer to get into a house. You know, for far too long it's been this narrative of, particularly for my generation, that if we stop buying flat whites, stop getting avocado on toast, all of a sudden, eventually, further down the track, we'll be able to get on the housing ladder. It's going crazy. Absolutely crazy. Housing used to be part of the great Kiwi dream. That dream is very quickly slipping away. How did we get here? And is it too late to turn it around? I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail... Is it so stuck now? Is it so embedded? Is it so cemented into the very financial and economic structures of the country that we can't get our way out of it? That's what I'm scared about. I'm... You know, I'm I'm scared that it's so baked in that you can't undo it. And that's a terrifying thought. Journalist Rebecca McPhee has been looking at New Zealand's path to a housing crisis in a feature for North and South magazine. After all, there was a time when things seemed just as bad, if not worse. We hadn't enough of any sort of house, even the old uncomfortable ones. We had people crowded up in old, out-of-date houses in busy streets. A nation's prosperity isn't measured in exports and show and false fronts. It's in the way people live and in how much sun they get, where the kids grow up and in how the sanitation works. This was in the middle of the Great Depression. 40,000 families living in houses that should have been pulled down, living in rooms and flats, wherever they could find a roof over their heads. Sometimes several families in one house. 40,000 families in 1935. And now, well, Habitat for Humanity believes 300,000 families are living in unacceptable housing conditions as a result of unaffordable homes, overcrowding and poor housing stock. The issue is dominating the news cycle and McPhee wanted to put it into an historical context. You know, every day you get up and there's stories about housing. I mean, today there's probably... I don't know, I've probably read 10 this morning. But phenomena like this, don't they don't arise rapidly. Um, there, there are deep roots almost always with social change, social and economic change. And so really it was a case of sort of going back and looking for what that might be. And that's that was the sort of framing for how we wanted to approach the story rather than, you know, what happened last week, what might happen next mm-hmm. week, you know, what the Reserve Bank's going to do tomorrow. All of that obviously is clearly as part of the story, but housing is really an incredibly complex ecosystem that affects, it touches all aspects of society. It's such a, because it's a primal human need, people need shelter. And that was really our, our kind of, starting point for thinking about how are we going to approach the story. 
the, the the classic beginning point is probably 1937 with the beginning of the Savage, the Michael Joseph Savage government's state house building program, and there's that you know famous photo where he's carrying the dining table through the front door of Fife Crescent in Miramar. Everybody is happy. The Prime Minister, Mr Nash, Mr Semple and Mr Lee take their coats off and help to carry in the furniture. Truly a red-letter day for homeseekers. And then it, it goes along, gets through the, the war years, and by, by 1949, uh, a lot of people talk about that being an election that was in part fought on the idea that would housing policy be about the, the mass provision of of state-owned rentals, if you like, or would it be this kind of shift towards mass home ownership? And the kind, the latter philosophy prevailed in a way, really. National won that election. And that really became, I think, the agreed kind of philosophy. So we, we, we moved through those subsequent decades with this. These houses are the evidence of how well off we are. They're an important part of our standard of living. It's a standard that's constantly being raised. What's often referred to as, a, as the post-war consensus, and what remains a kind of a permanent feature through those decades is, you know, really very hands-on, very highly involved state. So both the building of state housing that continued to go on until we get to a by 1990, which is kind of the the, the break point for all of this, 1991. Um, there are 70,000 state houses by then, which is, you know, more than Kainga Ora owns now. The other thing that emerges through those post-war decades is the development of state advances, the State Advances Corporation, which issued cheap loans for first-home buyers. So a lot of, um, a lot of just very ordinary working families, not people with a lot of money, were able to take out a 3% loan with the State Advances to purchase their first home, just as was happening in, in farming. I mean, I come from a family where my father um, had a state advances loan as a return serviceman to buy a farm. But this was also happening in the provision of housing as well. Um, another really big piece of this multi-pronged, very sophisticated system for the development of a high-functioning housing ecosystem was the ability to capitalise the family benefit from the late 50s. So the family benefit, which is long gone now, but was a universal benefit that was paid to every dependent child. So capitalising that meant that you could apply to effectively bring forward, capitalise the the value of what that benefit was going to be f- for your family. Yeah, I mean, my, and, my parents did that. To, ah. to build our extension on our house for, to fit all yeah, the, well, there the you six go. children and you could, in. <laughs> mm, right. Well, in, in in my story, I talked to Mark Goshi, who's um, you know been many things in a in a very long and varied career, but currently is the chairman of Kainga Order. But his own story, in a way, is this historical map of of our collective story in housing, because his dad came from Samoa, his mum was from South Auckland, left school at fifteen. They had uh, seven children and uh, they had a state advances corporation loan for a house in Papatoitoi. They capitalised the family benefit to build the extra room on the house. You know, it's a, it's a quintessential, in some ways, New Zealand story. And it was not without problems because you still had this huge, you know, there are big ethnic 
divide. You know, the position of Māori was never as privileged as as Pākehā. The situation for Pacifica was never as beneficial as it was for Pākehā. But the percentage of home ownership that was achieved across the board was just generally higher. And it is, you know, since the 90s, subsequently just kind of fallen mm. away. I mean, even if you're on a good whack these days and you're young, some kids now aren't even, it's not even in their ballpark, is it? Yeah. Mm. And this is the sort of deep thinking that has changed is young people coming up into the workforce who just can't contemplate how they would ever assemble the deposit to get a mortgage to buy a house um, so we've gone from an expectation in our parents and sort of grandparents, if you like, time that one day we will own a home to an expectation that how on earth am I ever going to own a home? Mm. And that's happened in two generations? One generation, I would say. I think it's happened in one generation. So what was the turning point? You know, I guess the proposition for my story in North and South is that that turning point is 1991. I guess my evidence for that being the break point is that I was able to look at the final report of the National Housing Commission, which was part of that deep kind of complex ecosystem that we talked about before with state advances loans, capitalising the family benefit, lots of state house construction and so on. There was this other thing also called the National Housing Commission, which was an advisor to government, it produced a five-yearly report. It would, It was completely independent and it would kind of survey the situation for how New Zealand was doing at housing its people, you know, how it was providing for the most primal need of the population to have shelter. Let's not forget that that's what housing is. Mm. It is safe shelter. Um, So we get this final report of the National Housing Commission in 1988, because after that it's abolished, you know, and it talks about what the situation is. There are a lot of stresses. It talks about lengthening queues for state housing. You know, it's not, a, it's not a, an ecosystem that's without problems. That there are a lot of pressures building. But there's this a couple of incredibly interesting observations in it um, where it says New Zealand is very fortunate still, however, to not have the problems of other countries such as Europe or America where... Um, there are people living on the street, handbag people it calls them, where people are turned away from emergency shelters because the need is so great they simply can't be accommodated. And the, and the uh, commissioners comment that, you know, thankfully New Zealand's abhorrence of poverty is, is such that, you know, this situation wouldn't be allowed to occur here. Mm. Now, that's 1988. Rebecca, was there some kind of international impetus to change this? What, what was the feeling in the country in the early 90s that made us swerve in the direction of, I guess, a harsher life for the poor? Uh, you know, benefit cuts, market rates, that kind of... Gordon Gecko kind of mm, philosophy. Mm. What what happened? I think you can't really disentangle it from the whole pro market, very you know radical pro market shift that New Zealand underwent in in the eighties. You know, obviously beginning with the nineteen eighty four Labor government, but the move of that thinking into the social sphere, particularly housing, was resisted by. I guess defenders, if you like, of the role of the state in the provision of core social services, including Helen Clark, who became the housing minister in the second um, term of, the lab, of that 
uh, fourth Labour government. And there was a lot of pressure coming on from Treasury. Treasury actually had this idea that the state shouldn't be providing actual houses. It should just be providing a voucher to help people who are poor to have a house. And that way you, you would develop what's called a tenure-neutral approach where people would have their voucher, they'd go out into the market, and they, they might enable them to uh, rent a house from a private landlord or, or they might rent from the state, perhaps. So the idea of this, the state having a particular role in the provision of housing is, is sort of under attack. From a, and it's, it's entirely ideological. I mean, there was, there's, no, there's no economic basis for this. It's, it's, it's a thoroughly ideological position. It's like a hands-off government kind of situation yeah. where the government yeah. should not be providing things that the market can provide and That's right. make a profit yeah. for themselves and yeah. know, contribute to so the wealth of the country, actually. Yeah. yeah. So it's exactly the same conversation that's going on through every other aspect of the economy through those years, you know, including, of course, you know, the labour market, which also undergoes this huge break point in 1990-91 with the Employment Contracts Act where labour is simply a market, the worker will go out and you know bid equally or negotiate equally for a job and a, and a wage and the market will ensure that that process is fair and equitable. Well, same thing for housing. There's no particular role for the state in this line of thinking. The market will provide. And so the break really comes... In, 19, in the 91 budget, which is, you know, the so-called mother of all budgets. The architect of that 1991 budget, Finance Minister Ruth Richardson, this year spoke to a friendly libertarianism group about why there had to be a radical shift. She told the group New Zealand was, at the time, dysfunctional. In truth, it has to be said that crisis was the catalyst for change. Uh, New Zealand had tried every socialist method every protectionist of of vested interest method, every state subsidy method, uh, and every means of control, and we had effectively uh, brought the country to to a a technical bankruptcy. That's when there's this... The key shift is really to the accommodation supplement, which still survives as the main plank of housing policy today. The cost is mind-boggling. It's, it's way over $2 billion a year. And it becomes, it's, it was never called a voucher system, but it's really emerged from that uh, kind of voucher thinking that Treasury was promoting. And there'd been warnings that this would not work, that the National Housing Commission had warned. There was another group that was actually set up to, within DPMC, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, to advise on you know how this kind of system could work, and they had a look at it and they thought, um, you know, that won't work. Um, it'll just it'll just force up probably the the price of rents, and it won't do anything to build houses. So, didn't matter. I mean, it's it's a it's a time of sort of peak ideology in some ways, and so that policy was implemented as a result of that ninety one budget. I think it took, takes a couple of years to actually be put in place. And the other part of that shift, there's the accommodation supplement and there's the shift to market rents for state houses, which previously were capped at 25% of, a, of the tenant's income. So suddenly you have these huge increases in, in rents for state housing and you have this quite complicated 
10-year neutral accommodation supplement coming in at the same time. And social service agencies in the 90s, you know, just saw the impact of this almost immediately. Um, Huge hardship, particularly in in areas like Auckland, rents going up. And it's the beginning of the, the sort of undoing, really, of this very sophisticated uh, housing ecosystem that had developed through the decades after the war. And to be fair, I guess you could have seen it as the government taking away on one hand in terms of putting um, rents up to market levels and, and therefore providing a, you know, an honest appraisal of the actual situation of what it costs to live in a house and mm. then on the other hand giving back by supplementing that rent in, in another form. Um, mm. You know, I, I, so I suppose it wouldn't have been too hard to convince people. No, look, we're not disadvantaging these people. We're just doing the accounting a different way. Yeah, and and I think that was, you know, probably how it was sold. And there, there was also a kind of a, another. There was a sort of a two-level system in in the old regime too, where if you were in a state house, you were on twenty-five percent of your income as rent. If you were renting in the private market, you didn't have that, and there was an accommodation benefit that was ran differently. So there were arguments about it being a two, you know, a two-tier system that needed to be equalised. So, like so, people in state houses were getting a better go, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So as always with all reform that's fundamentally ideologically driven, which this was, there are actually, you know, other kind of practical issues in there that are genuine and real. But the, this break is so kind of sudden. But it's not just that either, I think, that you have to think about. There's, there's all these other layers that then build on top. So the state also withdraws from cheap loans as per the old State Advances Corporation. So now the private banks are, in this, are really dominating the mortgage space. But what you had as well as then this gradual emergence, which really was kind of on fire, I recall it, by the early 2000s, where you had these almost evangelical property seminars that were being run because you could the, the credit was now available in the, from the private sector. The, the tax breaks were, you know, pretty sensational. If you had a house... You'd go to a seminar and learn how to um, leverage against your family home in order to buy your rental property and take all the tax write-offs, reduce your income in your day job by writing the interest costs and all the other costs of running your rental property against your wage income or your salary income. And A lot of those rules have changed since, but there's this whole culture that emerges, this virtually an industry of landlording based on the availability of credit and the availability of the tax breaks. So when you stand back and look at it, by withdrawing from um, building more state houses and and even lowering the ceiling on the stock, the government put the power and the wealth in the hands of anyone who was willing to invest in rental housing stock. Mm, mm. You go from housing being regarded as a, as a, a social good, if you like, a human right, uh, which has been referred to recently, to being um, an item of financial speculation. And I think that the latter, we have so, we've become so used to seeing housing referred to in those terms, reported on in those terms, um, analysed daily, weekly by bank economists in those terms that we've gotten used to it. And we've forgotten to think about housing as a 
primal human need and a human right. At the moment, we're looking at 40% of children living in rented houses, 100,000 people deprived of adequate housing. When I was looking at some of the research for this story, it was very reminiscent of the Great Depression. Mm. We, we kind of solved that problem by a series of quite radical at the time moves. Can we do it again? I think we can. I think we have to choose to. I mean, we've chosen a pathway. We chose it in 1991. We being collectively as a nation, political decisions were made. We went down that pathway and we've never reversed out of it. We can choose differently. We can choose to reframe housing as a social good, as core infrastructure, really. And, I mean, we're seeing clearly there's a shift going on now. Kainga Ora is building houses, you know, and it gets it comes under attack more or less every day for failing this or failing that. But there is a shift that's gone on, and we see that with the, there's a story this morning about uh, the number of people that it's been employing. Well, my hunch is that's probably good because we're having to rebuild the capacity of that agency to be able to deliver social housing on the scale that's now needed. But what we're dealing with now is really this enormous deficit in the housing system that's built up over now, you know, decades, 30 years plus. But the answer is yes. I can't see any reason why it's not possible to do that again. We just have to choose to do it. You know, I, I simply think we can't afford to think that this is unresolvable because if we think that we are really condemning huge swathes of the population to a very bleak future. That's all for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. And if you want to get in touch, email us at thedetail at rnz.co.nz. Flo Wilson engineered this episode. Thanks to Rebecca McPhee and North and South. Ka kite anō. 